Welcome back to Crime After Crime. It's November 1st, and I am John Lorden. And I am Danielle Hallen. Welcome back, you guys. All right. We've got a bunch of stuff to get to today, starting with big, big news. You might know CrimeCon will be in Orlando, Florida in September of 2023. Are you going to join us for the recording of our final episode as we once again talk about unforgettable Florida crimes, but this time we're doing it in Florida? It's so meta. My my, my brain just got twisted. It's absolutely perfect. And you guys can come and meet up with us for the big finale. So how do you get your name on the guest list and also get a bunch of free Crime After Crime swag? I'm here to tell you how. Buy a standard CrimeCon pass today using the code CRIMEAFTERCRIME. There's no spaces, by the way. And then all you have to do is email your receipt to CRIMEAFTERCRIME at lordandarts.com. That's CRIMEAFTERCRIME at L-O-R. D-A-N-A-R-T-S dot com. And the sooner, the better, just because we do have a limited number of seats and swag, and we don't want any of you guys to miss out. That's right. Get those receipts sent in. We'll get you on the list. This season, we're doing a mix of new topics and new stories based on some of our and your favorite topics from past episodes. The poll is up and running for one more month. We still need some of you out there to pick your top three topics on the list. Visit crimeaftercrimepodcast.com. Get your vote in today and help us make the final season the best one. Now, it's time for the results from our last episode, Halloween Crimes. You might remember, Danielle told the story of mysterious mail. Letters being delivered with unsettling details of influential people's personal lives and threats of exposing their secrets being used to extort them out of thousands of dollars. And I told the story of a modern-day pirate family, including (laughs) a pair of pirate teen twins who decided to rob a bank using their mom as the getaway driver. How did it all play out, Danielle? All right, you guys. So on Twitter, I received 38% of the votes, which you know what that means. John received 62%. <laughs> I was waiting for it. <laughs> and the website poll was not much different. I received 31% of the votes and John received 69%. So he just, out of the ballpark, knocked this one out. And so, unfortunately, that means that I have to hand over my beloved mug. <laughs> oh, well, I will take that mug. Thank you very much. And a big Enjoy thank it. you. Thank you to everyone that voted. And a special thank you to the Pirate family for an amazing story. I know. I'm almost positive that you won that simply because you had the pirate costume on. (laughs) That alone takes all the votes. It is a good costume. I do have to say. Uh, Okay, today we are looking into crazy prison escapes, but we're going to start with some facts about prison escapes from factinate.com. So according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics... For some reason, my brain wants to mesh those two words together into one weird one. Just but statistics. Just statistics. Was, yes. Yeah. That's almost what came out. So about 12.7 prisoners per 1,000 inmates escape. 12 point per 1,000? Yes. That's a lot higher than yeah. I would expect. Now, I looked at some stats over at Statista.com. They have an analysis that shows in the year 2000, more than 5,100 people escaped from U.S. Mm-hmm. state and federal prisons. Like, are we, do, are we not making the bars close enough together? Like, what's going Honestly, on? Honestly, I don't know. But I will say I actually used to live right behind a woman's prison yeah. when I was in high school. Um, I heard escapes 
What? All the time. I kid you not. Like it was right across the train tracks and I would be in my bedroom and I could see all the bright lights from the prison. And then you would hear this alarm go off and I'd just be like, another escape. Let's hope they don't crawl up this way. <laughs> wow. Jeez. Yeah. But I will say many of those include AWOL or going absent without leave incidents. So mm. likely for minimum security or transitional situations like the teenager you mentioned last month, they literally just walk out. So true escapes are far fewer. The rate of prison breakouts has also declined in recent years, thankfully. And the majority of escaped inmates are found and returned to prison. So we can all sleep soundly tonight. Absolutely. That same information I saw, I saw at Statista, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> it showed a sharp decline, uh, a downward trend with only 2,231 escapes in 2019. So less than half of the previous number. But is escaping from prison always a crime in itself? Shockingly, not necessarily. So some countries, including Mexico, Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Austria, consider it human nature to want to escape. So as long as you don't break any other laws, you don't get any additional charges or additional prison time tacked on. Sounds like a fun way to pass the time, doesn't it? Like if you're going (laughs) to be in prison, yeah, that's the place to be. (laughs) Hey, what are you guys doing today? Ah, you know, we're going to try to break out again. Why not? Yeah, I like it. No deterrent, like none. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Danielle, these stats make me think that we have plenty of cases to choose from. Let's kick it off by hearing a sentence or two from the amazing Danielle Hallen. Get it? Sentence? Prison? You know, someday you're going to dad joke me to death. Ah, if it's it like hasn't happened happen. yet. Yeah, if it hasn't happened yet, Danielle, it's not going to happen. You're like, this last year, I'm going to make sure. <laughs> so, you guys, believe it or not... This is a tale of true love. That's a big start. That's a big start. I know. (laughs) It is. Unbelievable. I know. But, you know, we all have our weak spots, the people, goals, dreams that we would, you know, do and give up anything for. And I feel like most of us with rational thinking, despite that, would still stay within the limits of what is acceptable and what is not. But for some, all that rational thinking goes right out the window. There's no line drawn in the sand. And that was the case for Stephen J. Russell. Okay. So Stephen Russell didn't exactly have the easiest upbringing. He was raised by a very religious family in Virginia. And at the age of nine, he unexpectedly found out that he was adopted. And in his own words, he felt rejected. So apparently, upon finding out this information, he realized that after putting him up for adoption, his mother went on to have other children, get married, big family together and she never tried to come back to get him it was just an absolute stab to the heart you know to each their own those situations can be tricky but he felt incredibly rejected and that usually does not do good things for people and it ended up leading towards a lot of undesirable behaviors he's still such a young kid he was starting to set things on fire he would get into a lot of fights um it just basically described everything as criminal mischief. He just started to throw himself into a lot of negative things. And so his family thought the only way to fix the problem was sending him to a home for boys. 
I know this sounds exactly like last month's story, but I promise you it's different. (laughs) (laughs) And so this is, and this is ultimately where he spent majority of his later childhood until he graduated. And upon graduating, everything seemed fine. You know, he's working at a handful of jobs. Criminal mischief has settled down. Um, He ended up being a volunteer deputy police officer, which I thought was very interesting. And he got married, had a daughter. So from the outside looking in, it was like perfect, you know? ideal white picket fence. But in reality, Stephen was dealing with a lot of turmoil still in his life. So in 1985, his adoptive father ended up passing away and he was incredibly close to him. And this was a huge blow for him. But on top of that, while that was going on, he was coming to grips with his sexuality, which was something that he had been very confused about since the boys home and was just, you know, trying to figure out for all this time. And so it was kind of like a moment of realization for him where he was like, you know, I just lost something. I can't continue to live my life in a way that isn't true to myself. And so ultimately this led to a divorce, which was amicable. You know, they had a conversation. He was still very close to his daughter, his you know ex-wife at this point, but it did mean that he was starting his life all over again. And unfortunately, by 1992, that path led him back into this criminal mischief. So... It's kind of sad how it happened because he had been hired at a food service company that was based out of L.A. He was doing well at this job, trying to, again, completely start over his life. And unfortunately, his boss found out he was gay and had a problem with it Mm. and fired him. Oh, man. In 1992? Yes. Oh, come on. And but I mean, here he goes again. Again, he felt rejected. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's at this other point in life where he's, you know, dealing with all of this and trying to figure things out and he's being rejected again. And so those same fires lit inside of him back when he was nine. Yeah. Started all over again. So in order to make a living after losing this job, he at this point is feeling super defeated. And so he decides to start selling fake Rolex watches. And it did make him a decent living for a while, but he still wanted slash loosely needed more. So he decided, you know what, I'm just going to go all in and I'm going to fake a scheme to fall and then file a suit with the insurance company to get a large chunk of money and just live my life the best that I can. And he was successful. He pulled this off beautifully, managed to get $45,000, which I hate to burst anyone's bubble, but back in 1992 when this happened, $45,000. Today's equivalent? Do you want to take any guesses, John? <laughs> um, 45 now. I don't know, maybe 100? 90? Close. 90,000. Yeah. 90. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> that just, mm-hmm. you know, took me a few minutes of my research to recover from that. Um, <laughs> but... So he ends up getting this money, but despite his plan originally working perfectly, he ended up being found out. He left a few holes unplugged. People figured things out. So he was thrown into Harris County Jail with a 10-year sentence for insurance fraud. But this wasn't going to work for Stephen, okay? Because what they didn't know about Stephen was that he had someone that he deeply cared for. And he would do anything, remember, for someone that he loved. Mm-hmm. So a man that he was dating at the time had just tested positive for HIV almost immediately prior to him being found out for fraud. And there was no way that Stephen was going to sit in jail while the person he loved died. So the very first of his escapes hit the planning stages. He knew that he had to get out of prison, but he wanted to be able to do it in the simplest way possible without hurting anyone. So his elaborate plan 
was to just walk out. That sounds familiar. It sure does. <laughs> it sure does sound familiar. Hmm. So for the next four weeks, Stephen spent his time keeping an eye on rooms within the prison. He was looking for different pieces he could put together for a costume of sorts. And eventually he stumbled upon a room that held women's personal effects. And the door just wasn't locked, you know, hmm. casually sitting open. So he went inside and managed to snag a pair of women's pants. And then he found a tie-dye shirt. Somehow in all of the searching, he ended up with a walkie-talkie. And so at this point, he's like, okay, I could potentially look like I work in the prison. Maybe I came in to do a job. You know, maybe I'm a guard visiting undercover cop. I've got this. I'm ready to take my chances. So when the day comes, he waited for the guards to all go on break, quickly changed into his outfit, casually walked up to the door, held out his walkie-talkie, goes tap-tap on the window, (laughs) and the guard opened the door. Of course. He's got a walkie-talkie. Absolutely. That makes (laughs) you official. He did. Tapped his walkie-talkie, opened the door, out Stephen went. Quite literally just walks out of the prison. I mean, couldn't the guard have held up his walkie-talkie and went, like, you know, shouldn't there be an yeah. expectation if you have a walkie-talkie, like, you could actually talk exactly. to the other person? <laughs> Apparently not. Apparently not. Apparently that didn't exist. And so Stephen, at this point, is free, and he runs straight to his boyfriend. And he's like, you know what? We're going to Mexico. Like, we're fleeing. I can't be here. They're going to catch me. And... Unfortunately, that didn't end up lasting too long because, again, he would do anything for someone that he loved. And his boyfriend got to the point where he was in the late stages of HIV, tiptoeing closer to death. At this point, there wasn't any treatment really at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they returned to the United States. And he's like, you know, I know this is risky, but I love him. I want to be able to help him. And so they come back. I know. Sweet. That's very sweet. On top of that, the medical costs were starting to mount. Yeah. And so he's like, you know what I have to do? I have to do something. I can't, you know, my boyfriend can't work. He cannot pay this off himself. And there was one thing that he knew for a fact could get him a large amount of money fast. Mm, No. Back to the life of crime. (laughs) Insurance fraud. The insurance fraud again. He did. So in the name of love, he attempted to pull off another insurance fraud scheme to help with this, you know, mounting debt from his boyfriend, but he wasn't successful. And so he was thrown right back in prison. Unfortunately, within weeks of this, his partner ended up passing away, which is really sad. But at this point, you know, Stephen's ultimately sitting in prison. He's got no current plan to escape because he doesn't have anyone to escape for. So he would assume like this is it. Throws in the towel, he's done. Oh, but he found love very quickly. Mm. This, t- <laughs> I know. So you're all like, oh, this is so sweet. Like within months, he's fallen head over here <laughs> with someone else. This time, another inmate named Philip Morris. Well, good that, that was- it's an inmate that yeah. at least they can just stay in together, right? Oh. They're going to stay in together and be happily ever after. Oh, yeah, it's going to be beautiful. <laughs> So Philip Morris, interestingly, from what I've seen, was actually incarcerated for failing to return a rental car, which was interesting. Um, And so they just, you know, fell in love with each other. And they're spending as much time as possible. And Stephen has even openly admitted that his demise at every point in his life has always been from his blinding obsession with those that he loved. Like, he will fully sacrifice himself for someone he loves. And so this chance meeting set him up to go on and become one of the most well-known con and escape artists in the state of Texas ever. 
He's already escaped once, but he just totally takes it to a new level. So after a few months of going strong, both men actually end up being released. He's paroled. Okay. He's paroled. Thankfully, because if they had not and just released Philip Morris, Stephen absolutely would have broken out. (laughs) Right. And so you would think, okay, now is it. Take your chance to live your life right. You know, this is everything you'd hoped for. He had his freedom. He had the person he loved. And he fully intended on doing everything possible for Philip that he had not been able to do while they were incarcerated. But that pesky issue again of money. Oh, no. Again? I know. know. It's just every turn you're like, oh. Yeah. You you feel for this guy. Like, you kind of want him to, like, okay, let's straighten it out. good. Yeah. Yeah. And so to spoil Philip and get money to do so, he needed a good job. But with this criminal history and then his job history combined, because the only legitimate job prior to this was that job that he got fired from. And I'm sure they're not going to give any good references just because they don't seem like great people. Um, He basically, it was going to be a difficult task to get any sort of good job. Plus he was taking things to a personal level. He had revenge to get Mm. revenge for his former boyfriend that died of HIV. Oh, Okay. I know. Interesting plot twist. So basically, Stephen created his very own perfect profile in history to hand over to a medical insurance company in hopes that he would get the job. All of the job experience that he put on there was completely made up. The reference numbers all led back to him. He's like, there's no way that I won't get this job. And sure enough, he snaked his way in and he was hired as the chief financial officer of North American Medical Management. Whoa. He BSed his way uh-huh. into a CFO role? Yep. That's insane. It's, wow. I'm he must be you. a good talker. Like, that's so, impressive. Well, Yes, you'll see. He can talk anyone into anything. And apparently on top of that, he also is very good at impersonations. Yeah. That was like one thing he was known for. So being able to put have every reference number lead back to him, you know, he could play any part that he needed to. Yeah. yeah. And he could wow. just sweet talk the crap out of anybody. <laughs> apparently. That's no joke. I mean, a CFO, no. first of all, even if, if – so he does do this. He gets the mm-hmm. CFO job. That job has to pay at least six figures. Like, shouldn't that be enough? Nope. Like, just, you know, stay there, kind of keep your head low, mm-hmm. learn mm-hmm. a little bit, take an accounting class, make sure that you can do whatever they're asking you to do. Like, Oh, well, funny thing about that is actually his manager said that he was the best employee that they'd ever had. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, he was the best at this job than anyone else you've ever had on the job. Oh, my God. Well, he was just getting it. Yeah, he knows about insurance companies, that's for sure. But he couldn't help but scrape off the top. Mm, mm -hmm. So in just five months' time, he managed to embezzle over $800,000 from dormant accounts. Wow. Hoping that the company wouldn't notice or at least wouldn't notice very fast. And all of this was basically to pay for his new boyfriend and to stick it to large medical companies because... Mm -hmm. They had treated his prior boyfriend so horribly while seeking treatment. Yeah. Apparently, it was a big thing. He had to watch his boyfriend be denied treatments over and over again, just given the runaround, fork out all this money. And so he's like, screw you. I'm going to take your money. And that's it. And on top of that, he already had this you know, chip on his shoulder from what had happened to his previous boyfriend. And... NAMM just proved they were equally as awful when he was working for them. So it just made it 10 times worse. Yeah. So 
Steven said, quote, at NAMM, I watched executives badger their medical directors to put pressure on network physicians to get patients out of the hospital as soon as possible, because otherwise it would affect their bonus. That got my revenge genes all greased up. So he's just re- he's just like ready to roll. He is mad. And so he took all of this money. He bought a home in Houston to live in with Philip. They drove only the most luxurious of cars, wore the most extravagant of jewelry. No more fake Rolexes. He's got real ones. They've got jet skis. I think he got Philip veneers or something like that, like very expensive yeah. dental work. They were just rolling in it because they were like, you know what? Screw you. We're going to take this and enjoy it. But it also kind of sucks because they weren't really at all concerned that they'd yet again involve themselves in a criminal lifestyle. Right. Right. And all good things must come to an end. So their taste of freedom, short-lived. Eventually, all of that money taken from those dormant accounts bound to raise a red flag. And it Mm -hmm. sure did. And, And the trail very clearly went all the way back to Philip and Stephen. And so, yet again, they were arrested. Mm. Man, they had it going for him too, right? Yeah, bought another ticket back into the big house. Why did they why did they arrest the boyfriend? Because he was in on it. He was helping move money and spend the money and oh, okay. so they both were in it for embezzlement. <laughs> okay. Um, so Stephen at this point was sent back to Harris County Jail. And this time he was deemed a flight risk because they're like, look, dude, <laughs> yeah, you done walked out of our prison the first time. <laughs> like, we're not doing this anymore. You made a mockery of the county. And so they're like, we're not giving you this opportunity. We're setting your bail at $950,000 and we're going to watch you to make sure that you don't run off again. Yeah. yeah. Do you mm. think it worked? No. Come on, Danielle. It's the end of the story. <laughs> We're the at end. the end now. Done. That's it. The end. He had another trick up his sleeve. Oh, goodness. He's literally just been arrested. He's like, I'm not going to post that bail. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to lower it. Okay. He calls in to Harris County Records Office, impersonating the judge, the exact same one that had set his bail to begin with. Keep in mind, they know this judge. He perfectly impersonates his voice over the phone. And he's like, you know what? That guy yesterday, you know, we put his bail at almost a million dollars. Let's lower it to 45000 And they're like, okay, sounds great. Wow. But wait, he was calling from in the prison? Yeah. Or did he great. have a cell phone? He didn't get no, like a hold of his in the pr- in, he, he's, he's in. He's in. Those calls are supposed to be monitored. Like someone should have noticed, oh, wait, he's acting like he's a judge and he's lowering his own bail. Oh, but it was successful. He must be great at voices. I want to hear some of voices. I know, right? Me too. (laughs) So by the following day, (laughs) it was literally drastically decreased. He wrote a check, paid it, and was free. Wow. Wow. Out again, second time, right? He hadn't even technically gone and faced any of his charges yet. He's just sitting there. You know, he's just been arrested. Yeah, yeah. But it didn't take very long for the court system to notice there was a problem because he didn't have intentions of paying any of it. He got it down to 45 for it to look halfway decent, wrote the check, and then it bounced. Bounced, yeah. (laughs) And so they're like, hmm. You know, something about this just isn't looking right. (laughs) Well, you know what sucks? If if he had the cash and Mm -hmm. it didn't bounce... It might have just not been noticed. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> that is exactly what I'm saying. But I'm sure they like froze his accounts and everything because he didn't yeah. all that money. And oh, yeah. but he's just like, oh yeah, here's your check. Bye. Wow. Like, do they not check that first? Like before they release people? I guess I, not. They should. Yeah. That's why I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, there used to be a day because I worked in, in retail like mm-hmm. back in the 90s. And uh, for certain places you would work at, if someone wrote a check, mm-hmm. you would actually have to call the bank and verify that the funds were in there before you give them the merchandise and let them go. Don't like, worry. Not in this case. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh, he's got a check. Okay. Let him out. Wow. But don't worry. Didn't last long because he was arrested within three days for his second escape. <laughs> well, because police caught on. They're like, okay, with this man, there's one thing we can rely on. Wherever he is, he's with Philip. <laughs> Yeah. Like he's going to run back to the person he loves. We've got a pattern here already. So yeah. he was he was found very quickly and he was again transported back to jail and ultimately was found guilty of fraud and sentenced to 45 years in Huntsville, Texas Ooh. at the maximum security Estelle unit. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I don't know what else you're supposed to do. Like Texas was embarrassed. <laughs> yeah. They were yeah. they were like, "No, we don't even know what to do with you anymore. Like you've made, I mean, Right. Come on. But imagine if it was one of those those countries that you mentioned earlier in today's yeah. episode. Like he didn't hurt anyone. He didn't. He wrote a. He made a he phone call. He still to a hurt bad anybody. Check. Yeah. 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 <laughs> crazy. But they're like you know not once but twice the same man has escaped without doing anything crazy. Yeah. That's it. We're not risking anything anymore. But mm-hmm. Steven still had other plans. He's like you know you you're you're making all these plans you're making all these you know taking all these extra measures but. I'm not doing it. So one by one, Stephen, while incarcerated, began to collect green markers from around the prison. Is he going to print his own money? <laughs> Honestly, I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> okay. But he just collected them all, stashed them all. And once he had enough stashed away, he's like, okay, next step in my plan, I need an extra prison uniform. Okay. So using his toilet or his sink, I have seen both. Yeah. He began to squeeze out as much dye from the markers as possible into the water. You making a camouflage outfit? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. He's going <laughs> to fake he's a janitor? No. <laughs> oh, my brain's going a million places. I know. See? Once he achieved the right color, he dipped the uniform in to let it soak. And recent reviews, he said that it actually took quite a few tries to get it just perfect because apparently using these markers, if you like ring out the clothing, it leaves streaks. Can't yeah. have that. Okay. Yeah. He had to basically dip it in and hang it dry, which is obviously a little conspicuous there and yeah. takes a very long time. Still pulled it off. But after trial and error, the final product was perfect. This once white prison uniform now looked exactly like a pair of doctor's scrubs. Uh, <laughs> come on. The exact same green color as the doctors would wear when they would come do prison visits. Wow. Wow. So I'm sure you're thinking, okay, all right, what on earth comes next in this crazy plot? There's got to be something wild and complicated. He's already gotten out twice. He's considered this massively huge flight risk. There's no way he is walking out of prison again. He's walking out of prison again. <laughs> he is. He is. <laughs> like, not even. He's just going to do it. <laughs> Same plan. So, December 13th, 1996, Stephen uh-huh. carefully wrapped his body in plastic bags that he had acquired and taped them down. So, his thought process was, 
I need to keep my scent minimal because they're going to see that I'm gone pretty quickly. They're not going to be happy and they're going to send out dogs to track me. Mm. So he put that on first. Very smart. I know. I was thinking the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Then he puts on his new pair of doctor scrubs that he's created. Mm-hmm. And then he waited for the woman at the front desk to answer a phone call and casually, you know, waves like, hey, doctor here. <laughs> I'm leaving. And she's like, yeah. okay. Click. While she's on the phone. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. distracted and just lets him through. Wow. Door opens, out he goes. <laughs> My favorite part about this is he says that once he got just out of sight, he turned around and he gave the prison the finger. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I literally saw it in my head as you were saying it. Can you imagine? Oh, wow. So he has escaped for the third time now. Second time that he has just walked out and he was in the maximum security Estelle unit. Okay. Mm. And he beelines it for the nearest neighborhood and starts knocking door to door. Now he continues this claim to be a doctor. He's like, I just had an accident. I'm a doctor. Alcohol was involved. You cannot tell the cops. I just need help so I don't lose my job. Please drive me into town. This guy, apparently along with everyone else, totally got bamboozled and is like, oh my gosh, sure, I'll help you. (laughs) Drives him to a Denny's. And from there, he's like, perfect. I am 10 miles away. And his first goal, as per usual, was to go and find Philip. Stephen yeah. said, quote, by the time they had their helicopters and search teams out, I was drinking margaritas in a bar in Houston. Wow. Wow. So at the time, Philip was still on bail, right? He's still waiting for his embezzlement case. Mm-hmm. Like, neither of them have gone to trial yet. It's only been, like, a couple of weeks at this point. And when they got back together, it was like nothing skipped a beat. And they're <laughs> like, look, I know... We've had a rough time, but we need to have another plan. And so they're like, we're going to leave Texas for good. We don't want to get captured. Mm -hmm. He already knew Mexico was not a good option from previous experience. So he's like, why not Mississippi? Why not? Why not? (laughs) He was like, you know. Yeah, we pissed off Texas. Let's just go piss off another state. (laughs) We'll go to Mississippi. He's like, there's lots of casinos. We can make money that way. Okay. I can play. Steven's like, you know, I I can play good tricks here. I can make us money. It'll be fine. And so that's exactly where they went. But again, police already knew where there is Philip, there's Steven. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be a lot easier to look for two people than finding one person in hiding. Yeah. Yeah. Just saying. Mm -hmm. And so it did not take long for a U.S. marshal to find both of them on December 23rd. So they got like a couple of weeks (laughs) of fun. And back to prison they went. Wow. And surprisingly, over the next 10 months, no prison break. And Stephen actually seemed to be withering away. He wasn't his usual sneaky self at this point. Like, everyone knows about him. All of the guards are, like, waiting for him to do something. They're keeping an eye on him. But none of his tricks were being played. He wasn't his usual self. He was losing weight at an alarming rate. And when they finally asked him, you know, something's got to be going on for you to have been like remained here for this long, Stephen informed them that during his hiatus, he had tested positive for HIV. Oh, man. Yeah. And he was dying. And so that is why it wasn't worth it to break out anymore. So his time of living life on the edge and running and the name of love was over. And so obviously the whole judicial system is like (laughs) – yeah yes right (laughs) like it's awful but they're like you know he he stopped he's not gonna make a fool of us anymore because man the headlines for every time he would escape oh yeah yeah. they just they didn't look good 
And so ultimately, day by day, Stephen just looked worse and worse. And the guards finally decided that death was imminent. So Mm -hmm. they sent him to a prison hospice, which I don't know why I hadn't connected that that was a thing. Obviously, it kind of needs to be. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So they sent him to that for his last moments on earth, basically. He had lost all color at this point. Absolute skin and bones, um, dealt with regular fevers and memory loss. He was like showing all those horrible signs of like the late stages of HIV. Yeah. And they dismissed his charges based on his imminent death. Um, And that happened, I believe, in February of 1998. Okay. But just when all hope had been lost, he actually was able to be granted medical parole for treatment. There was like this experimental treatment. And I guess like at that time, they're trying different things. Who better to try it on? I hate to say it that way. Yeah, yeah. You know, this guy's already in prison for basically the rest of his life at this point. They're thinking he has like a month left. And so they're like, maybe this experimental treatment will work and he'll be useful for something. But ultimately, within a few weeks, the prison got news that Stephen had died. Mm. And it was all over with. His glory days were over. Fast forward to March 20th, 1998. No, stop it. (laughs) Stop it. Yes. So Nation's Bank in Dallas, Texas, was putting together loan information on a man that they deemed very suspicious. (laughs) No, Danielle, stop. This This story (laughs) should have ended four times already. (laughs) This man was claiming to be a millionaire from Virginia, and he was attempting to get a $75,000 loan. Thinking this sounded a little bit strange, they're like, you know what? We're going to look into this information. And to their shock, their research led them straight to a man that was supposed to be dead. Oh, my goodness. Stephen Russell. Oh, my goodness. Now, but listen. They were like, this is a case of stolen identity. Oh, These guards are like, we watched him die. (laughs) like totally deteriorate we have his death certificate we have doctor's letters like this is stolen identity for sure and so they were like we got to find this guy because there was this little bit in the back of their mind that was like what if yeah what if and so they found him and And lo and behold (laughs) he was with philip it's stephen russell alive in the flesh oh my goodness the dude faked HIV. He did it again. <laughs> yes, oh he did. Oh my goodness. That is So, insane. they find him, right? And after everything he's done, they're like, "Oh, heck no." Like, they found him in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and they attempted to arrest him. And he at first was like, "You got the wrong guy. I am not Stephen Russell." Like, totally was trying to play off this identity but the texas department of criminal justice basically like reached out to the arresting officers and they said quote if he comes out of that apartment and says he's bill clinton you're gonna want to believe him don't right. <laughs> like right. do not believe anything he says and so they're like too bad so sad we know that you faked your death we are arresting you and so in the midst of his arrest what happens he has a heart attack I saw I'm not believing you. I'm just not <laughs> believing you anymore. <laughs> and so he has his heart attack and they sent him to the hospital. But still, you know, he's at the hospital. He's under watch. He's got to be transported back to Texas as soon as he's well enough. But then the hospital gets a phone call from an FBI agent. 
And the FBI agent is like, discharge this man. Like, he's not the real Stephen Russell. We've looked into it. He's an impersonator. And so they discharged him, and this stranger walked off. And this stranger was Stephen Russell. After having a heart attack, a supposed heart attack. He never had a heart attack, and that was no FBI agent. From his hospital room in the hospital, he called, impersonating an FBI agent to have himself released. Wow. And so he walked off yet again. Wow. Thankfully, on April 5th, 1998, he was captured while trying to retrieve a fax, which is kind of a weird way to be captured. I don't know how they managed to find him. And this time he was sent back to prison. It turned out that Stephen had literally faked the entire thing, obviously, but they were able to get more details. So he was familiar with how AIDS affected someone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He watched his partner die from it. Yeah. And so he was able to mimic as many symptoms as he possibly could. He did not eat the food that they gave him in prison. None of it. Right. One of the telltale signs is like very rapid weight loss. Yeah. And so he's like, I, that's one thing I can control. So he stopped eating. He started finding laxatives. And pretty soon he was just dropping weight. And imagine like the amount of, I don't even know the right word to put Dedication. There. Yeah, essentially. But like, yeah. I hate to call it that. I know. But like the amount of dedication put into not eating. Yeah. Day at all after for day. Almost a year. Yeah. Yeah. And constantly taking laxatives. And between doing that, it obviously very negatively impacted his health. And so then naturally, some of the other symptoms started to occur. Right. Right. And then this whole memory loss thing was just an absolute, absolute lie, obviously. Um And so then I'm sure you're like, okay, but he did that. But how, like, did the prison not test him to make sure he actually had HIV, any of that? No, they didn't. So he came in and said, well, while I was on the run, I was tested. I can provide you with medical records from my doctor. And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. So you know what Stephen did? He boogied on down to the computer lab. Mm -hmm. And he's like, HIV, I have it. Right. Literally faked everything. Printed (laughs) off multiple health documents, paid a few people, did a few favors, had the letters placed in just the right mailboxes, and it was as if they had been sent by doctors. No questions asked. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So they didn't test him again. And then the physician that coincidentally wanted to pull Stephen out for this experimental treatment, that was him calling from hospice. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And no one thought to question at that point because they're like, we just watched this man like, turn to nothing in our cell like there's no way he can't even get out of bed he doesn't remember anything he couldn't do this and then obviously once he left hospice he waited a few weeks and then reported his own death sending this fraudulent death certificate wow so literally the whole entire thing from start to finish and had he not tried to get this loan he probably never would have been found it's like he can't help himself but to like keep pushing things further yeah So the judge this time ended up ultimately sentencing him to 99 years in prison for his escapes alone, and then 45 years for his fraud and scams, totaling to 144 years in prison. And not just that, he was going a step past maximum security, and he would be on solitary confinement and locked down till the day he dies. Wow. Wow. So... Interestingly, he has participated in a ton of interviews. And so you can kind of, I don't know, he, it's like he loves it. He loves talking to people about everything. Sure, and it's very he worked hard. Inter- oh, exactly. Yeah. 
But he's currently trying to convince them to take him out of solitary confinement. Mm. So he says that he's not planning on trying to escape prison again and is completely fighting against the fact that he's been put on total lockdown. He's like, I'm a nonviolent criminal. I have not once harmed a single person. It's a good point. Not once. Yeah. And he's like, this should be reserved for people that are like a physical danger to yeah. the lives of others. And he's like, you know, on top of that, he's like, I mean, I'm not in contact with Philip any longer, which is backed up because there's absolutely no log of visits from Philip to the prison since he was given this last sentence. So Philip is just like absconded. Um, yeah. And he's like, you know, I've only ever fled from prison to be with a lover. He's like, I have no one. I have no one left to run for. And on top of that, he's also made all these claims that he's not even physically fit to do it anymore. He has given a lot of insight into what it's like to be in solitary confinement and that he has his one bed and that's it. He's like, I don't have anywhere comfortable to sit, rest my back on. He's like, it's compacted my spine um, and I have to be rolled around in a wheelchair. Like, I'm not going anywhere at this point and so he's trying to get them to take them out or him out but you can't help but wonder like reading every word that comes out of his mouth because when i tell you it's the weirdest feeling i encourage all of you guys to go and look at any of his interviews and read through them Mm -hmm. they're almost too perfect well and he's (laughs) he says exactly what you think like someone should say yeah well and he's there's been a pattern of escalation and why would it stop at this point Absolutely. He obviously gets a charge out of getting out of those situations Mm -hmm. and they've upped the game. Like Mm -hmm. it's been, it's been, let's go tit for tat and he's been winning each one. So now like why, why stop? Exactly. Yeah. This, this could just be his only chance at the Mm -hmm. long play that he's thinking about. Okay. I need to relax things a little bit so I can make my next move Mm -hmm. here. Um, And he's got nothing to lose because of his sentence. So why wouldn't he be thinking about how to get out? So exactly. Yeah. But I mean, he's so adamant. I'm not going to skate. There's the whole um, change.org petition to sign. Wow. He's got he's got a Facebook group. There's loads of supporters out there that believe that he does not deserve to be in solitary confinement. And like most of the articles start out with the fact that he like brings up that he's not like touched another human in over 10 plus years or however long it's been at this point. Um, and so he's like, you know, I don't deserve this that's happening. And he's like selling it. Big time. The the biggest problem with the whole thing is his biggest weapon in terms of being a criminal is his mouth. Mm -hmm. So you can't, like, you just can't entertain it. It's weird. I know. And it's so, but it's, and it's so hard. Like, and even when you're reading the articles, you keep being torn between like the humanity in it and like, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. But the guards have stated to this day, quote, if I know Steven, he is in touch with Philip Morris right now. Yeah. I'm absolutely yeah. positive that his little brain is constantly turning. Right. So it's like this game of, is he being truthful? Are we being too harsh on him? Or is he just doing what he does and has done so many times and is sweet talking the heck out of everybody? Because mm-hmm. this man technically escaped custody five total times, I believe. Yeah. He escaped from prison three times and then custody two times. Wow. Huge thank you to The Guardian, Alcatron.com, The Grunge, HuffPost, The Focus, TodayIFoundOut.com, Case Law, and ultimately Stephen Russell for today's story.
absolutely. He he needs some credit in all this because uh, that guy works very hard at that, those types of crimes. And I do appreciate that ultimately he is a nonviolent offender. Um, yeah. And he kind of challenges himself yeah. too. Also, mm-hmm. like, you know, how do I walk out of this one? Like, that's a really interesting approach to. Yeah, exactly. To doing that. Wow, Danielle. Five escapes. Yep. Is my Does my story even have a chance? I think we should just end the episode right no. now. <laughs> no. Not to mention, You've already it's already, talked it up. I'm ready it's for already it. been like 45 minutes. <laughs> I know. I can't help it but talk. I'm sorry. It was a long one. We knew it was, was going to be a long one. one. That's all right, because I've got a long one, too. We're just going supersized episode this time, and we're going to continue <laughs> it right on the other side of this commercial break. Are your dinners starting to feel like a personal prison? Same thing day in and day out. Make your big escape by trying HelloFresh. With a weekly selection of more than 35 recipes and the ability to customize your recipes, you'll always have something new to try from HelloFresh. And it's all delivered right to your door. Save money on dinner with HelloFresh and put it towards your holiday shopping. HelloFresh is 25% less expensive than takeout and cheaper than grocery shopping. That will go easy on your prison wallet. Um, do you know what a prison wallet is? Sure that thing that you use to order stuff from the prison grocery store come on try to catch up here oh boy this week i had black bean quesadillas with salsa fresca um that's fresh salsa danielle in case okay, you don't thanks. know packed with flavor and fresh ingredients that are only seven days from the farm to your door it was crispy mm. yet gooey and just out of this world now you can try that, which I will definitely be trying that, and more tasty recipes by going to HelloFresh.com slash CrimeAfterCrime65 and use code CrimeAfterCrime65 for 65% off plus free shipping. Make the jailbreak from boring meals. Go to HelloFresh.com slash CrimeAfterCrime65 and use code CrimeAfterCrime65 for 65% off plus free shipping. Don't say it. Don't, John, Your don't say it. Your prison wallet will thank you. Try America's number one meal kit today. All right, you guys, welcome back. If you can't tell by my very long story, I was very excited for this episode. <laughs> I have I like, this fascination with prison escapes, you guys. It's bizarre. Well, yeah, I mean, she did. She suggested this topic. And when she did, I could tell she was super, super excited. But outside of that, I think she's just taken a huge swing at me. What do you guys think? <laughs> I think she was trying to what? knock me out in the first half. Okay. Well, I will say this. For the first time ever, I was actually very confident in my story last month. <gasps> I mean, she serious. She don't, has this. Lol, stop, because I'm going to feel bad for saying no, that. No, 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 no. But no, I, I, was, feel good. I was so excited and confident about my story last month, and then you whooped my butt. <laughs> and so she had to come back, and now she's <laughs> I had gonna... to come back strong. <laughs> yeah, she sure did. <laughs> wow. Um, can I take it on? Five escapes in total? Mm-hmm. Danielle. John, you're going to come back with like 40, aren't you? All no, right. Oh, no. I wish. <laughs> uh, I did run into a story about a man who is pretty much famous because of his many escapes and a YouTube video. Uh, look, we've all heard about the Alcatraz escape or the El Chapo escape, mm-hmm. but for some reason, I had never heard of this guy before. Imagine taking a movie superhero like Indiana Jones or John McClane from the Die Hard series, but he's not a good guy. Mm. Today, we're talking about not one, not two. How about five clever escapes 
The Five Clever Escapes of Richard Lee McNair, the oh only gosh. man to have escaped a jail, a state penitentiary, and a federal penitentiary. His last escape was the first time someone had escaped from a U.S. federal facility in more than a decade prior to that. Byron Christopher, who wrote a book on McNair, says, quote, Richard Lee McNair is to prison escape artists what Babe Ruth was to baseball and Wayne Gretzky to hockey. Wow. I also have to give Byron a huge thank you for all the information he shared over at ByronChristopher.org about this case. He gave us an amazing level of detail into today's story. McNair was born in Oklahoma. His father was a reserve police officer. Byron Christopher says McNair looks more like a Boy Scout than a con, and his background might explain that. McNair is a former Air Force sergeant. Mm. He, he has no piercings, no tattoos. He doesn't smoke, doesn't drink. Now, I do want to start by not romanticizing him too much. This guy should be in jail. In his 20s, he killed a man during a botched robbery, and he wounded another, shooting that guy four times. He was sentenced to two life sentences for murder and a 30-year sentence for the burglary. Of course, it's also very difficult to keep him in custody, and that starts with his arrest for those particular crimes. That was all in one occurrence, man. Yeah. Just a terrible, wow. terrible botched burglary where two guys popped yeah. up on him and uh, with his military training. He took one out, and it sounds like he was really trying to take the second guy out. I was about to say, (laughs) I think he was trying. Yeah. So it was February 1988, and McNair was handcuffed to a chair in a room with three detectives. They left the room. McNair reaches into his pocket, pulls out a little lip balm. He uses that on his cuffed wrist and slips out, slips the cup the cuff right off using Good lip grief. balm. He's just like, mm. yeah, pops he's like, right out. No he's like deal. James Bond all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, he takes off through the building. He runs off into the town, the cops hot on his trail. He runs into another building, goes up to the third floor. And with the cops behind him, he jumps. I mean, it's literally like a scene from the this Harrison is, Ford this movie. This is a movie scene. That's what yeah. this is. Yeah. It's like, it's from the fugitive. He leapt towards a tree branch He actually hits it, but the branch broke. He landed on the ground, injuring his back, and his first escape attempt came to a very quick and painful end. Four years later, while being held in the North Dakota State Penitentiary, he worked with two other inmates to pull off his second successful escape. They wound up crawling out through ventilation ducts. One inmate. Yeah. Well, I mean, that one's kind of common, you know, like, yeah, we've, we've yeah. heard the, the ventilation, actually like the toilet, <laughs> the sewage and yeah, ventilation ducts. Ew, gross. Yeah. I imagine. Uh, one of those inmates was free for only a few hours. The second was free for a few days, but McNair, he was free for 10 months. <laughs> so that was like a decently successful escape right there. That's really successful. He got, Ten- he got some good time. <laughs> 10, almost a year he was out. He grew his hair out. He bleached it so that he could change up his look oh, a little bit. Oh, man. Yeah. According to Wikipedia, he spent his time roaming the United States in stolen cars. When he was recaptured, he was deemed a problem inmate and sent off to other facilities. This would lead to what I consider his greatest escape and several other others considered as well. It was April 2006, and McNair was now in 
Pollock, Louisiana, in a maximum security prison, the United States Penitentiary Pollock. He wasn't in any gang. He kept fit in the prison gym and by running around in the yard. And other than that, he generally kept to himself. In 15 years of being behind bars, he had no write-ups for violence. Hmm. He had even earned the privilege of a job working on mailbags for the U.S. Postal Service. He would basically go through old ones and they would see which ones they could repair. Yeah. Uh, he, he was also working on becoming the first man to escape from USP Pollock. He would tell Byron Christopher in one of the 300 letters that he mailed to the former journalist and author, quote, somebody once said, prison is one big college of crime. Well, my credits were in Escape 101. And, and, you know, it sounds like big talk, which yeah, sure you, know, does. you might ex- expect from anyone sitting in prison. But this guy, his actions actually back it up. He's being very serious. Yeah. And plus, he might have had an early start on that education, considering that he had military training. And seriously, he specifically, Danielle, had training in escape and evasion. Oh, yeah. All this is lining up pretty well now. <laughs> So the mailbags that they couldn't repair would get loaded onto pallets and then shipped off to a warehouse for storage. McNair listened in on his fellow co-workers and superiors to understand what exactly was happening with those shipments, how long they took to get picked up and dropped off, and he just had this plan forming. He thought about building some type of escape pod disguised as a shipment of those old mailbags, and then literally shipping himself off to freedom. But he had learned lessons along the way from his previous adventures, and this time he wasn't going to trust anyone else. This was going to be a total one-man operation. Mm -hmm. Solo. Yeah. So how would he be able to build something like that and not get caught? He decided he needed the area that he was working in cleared out. It was pretty open. There was no real place to hide something, so he would just need to make sure that no other inmates would ever want to go in there. So what did he do, Danielle? He was a jerk. He was just an absolute jerk anytime anyone else. Yeah, there was four other guys that were supposed to be working in there. He was just the biggest jerk to them. (laughs) He's like, yeah, you smell bad. Get out. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, he was just he just kept at it until no one wanted to be in that room anymore. Like he literally scared him out. Back on that dedication. Yeah. He then built his first version of the escape pod, which he fit into, but it wasn't really big enough for any supplies. And it had a few other flaws that might lead to him being discovered. So he tried again. This time he was using metal tubes held together with zip ties and all of that wrapped with the old mail bags Mm -hmm. to sell the disguise. He even took a cardboard tube that he had found with a shipment of fabric that had come in and he built a snorkel a tube that would basically like a reach, breathing hole. <laughs> yeah. A, a breathing hole that would reach down to the bottom of the pallet to an opening on the bottom of the pallet. So he could get some fresh air. Uh, after all, we're talking Louisiana and yeah. the pallets, not only are they bags, stacked bags, but those bags were shrink wrapped with plastic. And that's so scary to me. Yeah. And, and honestly, he didn't know how long he would be in there. Yeah. So you got to try to make it as comfortable as possible and then have enough supplies to survive through whatever's going on with that. At 7.20 a.m. on April 5th, he stripped down to his shorts and passed through a metal detector. That's the usual process for him to go to work. He put on a brown jumpsuit, continued his way to his workroom. But today he had some extra supplies with him, a kit of food. When he was asked about it, he said it was just a snack for his break time. 
and they let him go on his way. They didn't know that he'd been squirreling away other supplies in his workroom already, including clothes, gloves, water, first aid supplies, even toilet paper. Because he also had access to sewing machines for his job repairing Mm -hmm. the bags, he altered t-shirts of his into long sleeve shirts so that he could fend off mosquitoes and ticks. Oh, wow. This, he's military. Like He's this thinking dude, everything. He's not he's, missing a single detail. Yeah, he's going through it. So he had the supplies. He had his escape pod. But how would he get someone to actually have it loaded onto the truck? Especially if he wasn't telling any other inmates about his plan. He decided he was going to tell a few of the other workers that he was going to medical. And that the supervisor wanted the pallet on the next transport out. Oh, sneaky, sneaky. He then tapes several of his most critical supplies to his body in case he would have to sprint out. He would have the most important stuff that he needed with him. Man, but, still thinking just above and beyond. Oh, yeah. He even <laughs> he had a map, Danielle. Are you serious? He, he somehow got a map in the prison of like a 10-mile square <laughs> radius of the area and he even put it in a plastic pouch so it could get wet and it Waterproof, still wouldn't get yeah. damaged. Yeah, like this guy is just, he's over the edge. Uh, he had less important supplies inside of a bucket, but he taped those into the bucket as well so they wouldn't make any noise as the pallet was being moved around. Uh, you know, he didn't know what type of activity would happen with him being in the pallet. Uh, when he built the pallet, he had made a little kind of rabbit hole on one side that he could slip into, but he had to already wrap it in plastic. He used talcum powder to kind of open the plastic enough without breaking it so that he could actually squeeze into the hatch. Mm. And then he went in. A moment later, the room looked completely empty except for that pallet sitting in there. Uh, I was crunched over. And every surface was pushing against me, my knees against my chest, my chin on my knees. He would later say he was just literally piled into this thing in a really bizarre uh, way that he was bent over. At 8.35, he heard a pallet jack nearing. He heard the metal forks sliding under him. And a moment later, the pallet was being lifted and started rolling out. By 9 a.m., his escape pallet was on a flatbed truck, but the truck wasn't going anywhere. What was going somewhere was the temperature. <laughs> I was about to say, that's been like my whole concern this whole time. Yeah. I've been he, like, is it hot? Is it cold? Like, what are we doing here? Is he all right? Like, he's going to this pallet, die of a heat stroke. Yeah, this pallet. And and honestly, that was one of the big threats he's concerned about. Like, that's mm-hmm. why he's trying to, he has water with him. He has this breathing tube. Uh, the author, um, Byron Christopher, wrote that it was 90 degrees in the shade that day. And... There was no shade on the loading dock. This guy's sitting Mm -hmm. out on the back of a flatbed. Uh, McNair told him, quote, the heat was unbelievable. The inside of the pod felt like a furnace. Sweat rolled off me. My head was swimming in the fog. I was afraid I would pass out. To keep my mind focused, I concentrated on my military training and thought about how difficult our fighters had it in Iraq. The trick is to distract the mind, yet focus on the mission. My mission was freedom. And that freedom was very close. So he sat there sweating, fighting off the anxiety and the nerves for 30 minutes. Then he heard it. The engine started and he was off. But there was still a few checkpoints to get through, including a guard that was specifically searching for human cargo. Oh, interesting. 
Apparently, there are a few rules of the prison that might have actually prevented this escape. The first is that cargo has to be searched. And obviously, that's not the easiest thing to do when you're talking about these pallets that have been shrink-wrapped in plastic. Yeah. Uh, The second is that anything leaving would usually be put in a locked and confined area for 24 hours. They refer to it as a hot cage, which I bet is probably because it doesn't have air conditioning in there either. So essentially, if you are hiding in a pallet like this, they would just... It's going to push you right on out. Yeah. And they're going to stuff you in a room for Mm -hmm. 24 hours before that thing gets carried out. Uh, So they didn't do any of that initially. And... Um, we just hit this one guard, but the guard wasn't done with this human cargo check. He noticed that something looked off with the pallet. Ooh. The shape of it was just a little different. He tugged mm-hmm. at it a few times and he told the driver that that pallet should be put in the hot cage. The driver disagrees. And after some, after some bantering back and forth, the guard eventually agrees to let them go and the pallet back on its trip. Oh gosh, this so could have been prevented. <laughs> Easily that like there's really there's there's a, a breakdown happening here, oh my gosh. but he also knew about that there was through him hearing and, and listening to his supervisors and what mm-hmm. they were saying. There was one in particular that had said, hey, look, we need to get these bags that we can't repair off site as quick as possible. I don't yeah. care what you guys have to do. I want them gone. So he knew he had a certain amount of time yep. to be in one of those pallets and it was probably going to skip some of these checks. And essentially he was right. Um. Soon, he could hear a forklift. He was being moved again. He had no idea what to expect. Quote, I tried to sense what was happening around me. I could hear voices muffled by distance and by the pad of the padding of mailbags. Mm-hmm. But soon, those voices went away because at this time, it's, it's getting close to lunchtime. He opened his secret hatch to find another pallet pressed right up against him, blocking his exit. Oh, no. (laughs) Now, he doesn't know if he's on the ground. He doesn't know if he's up on a shelf. He could be 30 feet high. Yeah, he has no idea. But he uses his legs to start pressing the pallets apart, risking that if he is on a shelf, he could easily push one of these pallets off. And all of a sudden, there'd be this loud crunch. And, you know, I'm sure people come running. Um. So he starts pushing. He gets just enough room open. Thankfully, none of the pallets fall over. He squeezes out. He says, after my eyes adjusted to the sudden onslaught of light, I was relieved to see no one was around. And second, I was in an open warehouse. I never saw anyone in or around the warehouse. I didn't run for fear of drawing attention. He exited the warehouse, but he was still on prison property. Plus, in all the energy and excitement, he actually left his bucket of supplies back in the pod, but he still had those most important items yeah. still taped on his body. Well, and also imagine having to fight against that urge to run as fast as Serious. you possibly can. <laughs> you all of a sudden see this big open room and like a door over at the end and you're just like, and like yeah. Walking, I would be like having trouble breathing, like trying to get myself to slow down. <laughs> Military training. And honestly, Seriously. Danielle, this guy... Uh, like he knows how to really handle his nerves. There's another really big example of that coming up. Like he oh, is just, boy. he's so solid when it comes to his nerves. Um, So he exits the warehouse, but he's still on prison property. And uh, he sees several workers. There's this area that's under construction for a new add-on that they're doing to the prison. So he has to kind of be careful as he's maneuvering around mm-hmm. them. 
but he does cautiously make his way around them. He breaks off into some woods. He climbs a few fences. And finally, he's on public property. And he's officially a fugitive. So soon after, a police officer in Ball, Louisiana, sees this guy running near some railroad tracks. And at this point, everyone had heard about the prison escape. And the officer saw this man wearing clothing that didn't make a lot of sense for a jog, especially what looked like baggy work pants that had been converted to cut off shorts. He, uh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so he stops to speak with the man. The dash cam video of this conversation is available on YouTube with over 38 million views. And its title, not to give it all away, Prison Escapee Convinces Cop He Is Actually a Jogger. <laughs> Danielle, this cop knows about the escapee. Yeah, so it's he, not even like a surprise. Like, you're already on alert. You yes. already got this in your brain. Yes. And on top of that, as he's talking to him, like, if you watch this video, it's only 10 minutes long. If you watch this video, he's literally calling back to the center asking for additional information. He literally tells McNair, wow, you really match a lot of the description of this guy that they're looking for. But because his birthday is like two years different, like he kind of writes it off and McNair is just being super friendly and like, oh, I'm just, am I not supposed to run out here? I just like running by the tracks and like, just, I'm telling you, like nerves of Plays steel. Plays it off perfectly. Just completely. And even friendly, like he's being friendly. Uh, so despite the officer calling in to find out details about the fugitive and McNair literally standing in front of him. <laughs> <laughs> he convinces this cop that he's someone else, even though he doesn't have any ID on him. And yeah, like no proof of this at all. He's just yeah. like, yeah, just take my word for it. Even though like, you know, this information and you've already decided that I look sketchy and nothing to prove it. And oh. better yet, he even messes up the fake name that he gave the cop. He originally says that he's Robert Jones. And then like two minutes later, he calls himself Jimmy Jones. <laughs> By the you know end, what that is, that's just luck. He's just got good luck. That's all that boils down to. He is good. He is good. Uh, by the end, he winds up laughing and joking with the cop. He's even given him, he's starting to give the cop personal details that are actually true. He talks about him being former military. He talks about his father being a reserve officer. He eventually completely convinces this cop to let him continue on his jog. And even outside of that, Daniel, near the end of his conversation, the cop is like, yeah, you're probably going to get stopped by other people because of what's going on with this escapee. And he's like, oh, well, can I tell them that I've already spoken to you? And you know, can I get a number for you or something so that I can have them call you? And the guy's Please don't like, tell me that. No, the no, guy's like, yeah, just call 911. Just tell them 911. And here's my here's my name. And yeah, they'll get it squared up for you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I honestly feel bad for this cop once he finally realized what happened i can only imagine how he felt yeah well now another kind of cool aspect to this is at this point like you know mcnair did that robbery in his 20s Mm -hmm. and very soon after that he was just like he decided he was not going to be a violent person ever Mm -hmm. again he probably could have taken this cop oh absolutely i mean he he literally had emotionally disarmed this cop to the point Mm -hmm. where i i think if he would have was down yeah, his guard was down. If he wanted to take a swing at him, take his gun, take uh, you know, take off in his car, like all of that was a very real possibility here. 
and he didn't go that way with it at all. So kind of similar to the story that you told earlier, like he had a very particular way that he was going to be able to do this yeah. and he wasn't going to resort to anything truly, truly awful. But with that escape number four complete. So he decides that, you know, he learned from last time when he was out for 10 months, he decides this time he's not necessarily going to stay in the U.S. He does start his old ways of stealing cars and traveling a lot. And Which within, is super risky to me, right? It, well, or am I just like, I mean, he, I, I he get leans it, but... on it. He leans on it because he used to be a car salesman. Oh, and okay. the cars that he's stealing are from dealerships. And he's doing mm-hmm. that because he knows what where the dealerships are likely to hide their keys and where they're likely to hide their money. Yeah. So he keeps hitting these dealerships and basically taking cars. Um, so within two weeks of his escape, he does cross into Canada. He was featured about a dozen times on America's Most Wanted. And he says every time one of those segments ran, like he he would bone up on supplies, he would lay yeah. low, like he was just, and he was like, I can't believe they're running another one. Like they ran it over and over and over. Um, and on April 13th, 2006, he was officially added to the U.S.'s 15 most wanted list. Now, a few weeks after his escape, once again, he's in Canada. He was parked mm-hmm. at a beach in a stolen truck near Campleton, New Brunswick. A Royal Canadian Mounted Police Constable spotted the stolen vehicle and went to question the man inside. He asked McNair to step out of the vehicle to talk, which he did. However, he knew this wasn't a good situation. Like this yeah, was, no. This, this isn't one you can talk yourself out of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you get one of those, I think, per, per escape. <laughs> um, thankfully, once again, he had renounced violence after his crimes back yeah. in the late 80s. But he knew it was time for another escape. So he bolts. And keep Just in runs. mind... This is a guy that he stayed fit knowing that he was going to have to be a runner. Like he would run around the yard, even in once he got to this escape and actually started mm-hmm. having some free time, he would do a lot of like uh, biking and like he was just, he would keep keeping really, up on it. Yeah. yeah. Keep in good physical shape. And it worked. Like he, he literally ran away. <laughs> the cops tried to chase him. The gap That's separated exhausting. and he was, yeah. He was off. He took off running across a field and he made distance from the RCMP constable and escaped again for the fifth time. Now, the trick is they didn't even know at the time that it was him. But a few days later, one of the constables was watching America's Most Wanted. (laughs) And he's like, wait, isn't that the guy that we saw a couple days ago? And they confirmed it with fingerprints that were in the truck. And with that, U.S. authorities were now aware that McNair was actually in Canada. Byron Christopher says McNair, for nearly 18 months... Holy crap. (laughs) ...managed to travel freely between the two countries while he continued breaking into car dealerships from time to time, stealing cash or cars, but he never robbed a person or a home. Okay, good. I like that this is a theme. Yeah. Keep yeah. it. If you're going to be like that, at least keep other people up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And honestly, Danielle, this guy's like living his best life. He's yeah. mountain biking. He's doing photography. He's like buying video cameras. He's filming himself as he's traveling. He's working on making fake IDs. He has like a driver's license, I think, that he makes for, I think, Alaska. <laughs> he's. Oh, my gosh. But to your point, 
earlier, stealing cars might be the biggest mistake that he made, yeah. especially having that be part of his regular MO. In October of 2007, another RCMP constable spots a vehicle that had been reported as stolen. Constable Stéphane Gagnon, who had been on the force for only six weeks at this time, pursued the vehicle mm. after a low-speed car chase, once again, <laughs> thinking safety, and yeah. another foot chase. He bails out and he's like, hey, I know how to run. You guys going to keep up? He actually does get captured this time. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Now, along the way, got a young new officer. He's ready to, yeah, put his name on the (laughs) book. He did. He wanted that promotion quick. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, he was recaptured. But even with that, he's literally like joking with the RCMP constables. Like one of them asks, like, "So how much is that reward for you?" And uh, he says, uh, "Oh, it's it's twenty five thousand." And the the constables are like, "Oh, that's pretty low, isn't it?" And then he, he's, he fires back. He's like, well, my country's spending all its money on trying to find Osama bin Laden right now. Oh, like, my gosh. He just has this banter. Like, yeah. he's going back and forth with these guys. And then he even actually refers to them as good men doing their job. Well, you know, <laughs> at least he takes it for what it is. And he's like, you know, yeah. I tried and I got caught. And, you know, can't blame me for doing what you had to do. Yeah. <laughs> So he is now 63 years old, and he's wow. incarcerated at ADX Florence, which is a Supermax prison in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Now, Supermax prisons are for the baddest, the baddest of the bad. Like, they yeah. are the most secure prison facilities, usually reserved for people who are a serious threat to national and global security, like mm-hmm. the Unabomber. Yeah. He's at ADX Florence. Uh, or... Other people that are high security risks like McNair. Mm -hmm. ADX Florence has a nickname. It's called the Alcatraz of the Rockies. Now, at this point, Danielle, I'm I'm thinking that we're tied because we have five escapes versus five escapes. But personally, I'm wondering if McNair might be plotting number six. And maybe this one's a collaboration. (gasps) I found his Twitter account. No, you did not. I did. And in 2019... (laughs) He tweeted, I've been a 10-year resident of hashtag ADX Florence, and I see a new resident is coming. El Chapo. Oh, good grief. I look forward to meeting you and sharing breakout stories. After all, no one has escaped from ADX Florence. They used to say the same about U.S. Penitentiary Pollock in Louisiana until McNair was sent there. Oh my gosh, John. I have to thank a big thank you to Byron Christopher and uh, especially his blogs over at byronchristopher.org, all that's interesting.com, archive.org, the video fun and learn channel on YouTube, which hosted that and with only 30,000 subscribers got 38 million views. Uh, last link on the left and Wikipedia for information contributing to today's story. Now, for anyone that wants to learn more, In late 2021, Discovery Plus released a four-part documentary series on this called Prison Breaker, and it's all about McNair. However, Byron Christopher, even though he's one of the executive producers Mm -hmm. and he's written a book on this, like obviously he knows McNair's story. He's the one that got the 300 letters from him. He only gives it 1.5 stars out of five. Oh, man. Sometimes you're your own toughest critic. Well, why? Quote, 
It was a superficial high school production that followed a predictable cookie cutter format. In other words, not a lot of original thinking. I realized the need for things to be exciting and entertaining, but it should also be accurate. Oh, man. Dang. Yeah. So if you do want to learn more about this, you're probably better off picking up a copy of Byron Christopher's book, Mm -hmm. The Man Who Mailed Himself Out of Jail. And you can find that on Amazon. Good grief. (laughs) I'm going to keep a close eye on that now. If I ever see his name pop up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You'll know. McNair did it again. I know. Good grief. Imagine both of them getting out again somehow. Mm. Yeah, it's, now, it's they would be trouble together. I'll tell you that. Yeah, but it's interesting because they're they're two very very different approaches. Oh, like absolutely, y- your guy is basically a social engineering genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy, it's the military training, like creativity, discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, but your guy had discipline too. That's that's definitely a a, a similar factor in both these stories. Exactly. Both extremely disciplined guys. The other thing is, you know, McNair was trained to, like, avoid detection. That's why when he gets out, he actually gets out. Like Exactly, yeah. His first, you know, that first one we talked about, 10 months. The next one, almost 18. Like, you know, that's two years that he mm-hmm. bought back by essentially doing those escapes. I'm telling you, these people are wild. Yeah. But they aren't the only ones. We have a few other stories here, and we're going to start with Danielle. All right. Now, this guy may or may not have a little something on these two. Okay. Okay. Brian Bo Larson from Denmark has full on made a lifestyle out of breaking out of prison. So in his 20s and 30s, he spent time ping-ponging back and forth between being locked up and civilian slash criminal life. And when I was looking into this, interestingly, prison in Denmark is not even that awful, which I wasn't aware of. You're like, yeah, how does everyone know this? And I don't know this. Well, uh, that's what I was talking about earlier about the other countries having different Mm -hmm. approaches. Yeah. Denmark is, is not terrible. It's pretty progressive. Yeah. Exactly. It's like totally different. So basically prisoners get to eat with their family like once a week they have their own nice rooms they get to wear their own clothing um so i'm almost like surprised the amount of times that he's tried to make a break for it because it's i mean obviously no one wants to be there but like it's not even that bad and brian apparently just was having none of it so he managed to escape from denmark prison 22 times (laughs) he's just I mean, at this point, I think he's just doing it just to see the different ways he can do it. And two of the most notable ones that stuck out in my mind. Okay. One instance, he actually escaped. And I don't don't know how exactly he escaped. It never went into it. But it's how fast he was captured. And like, and this to me shows he didn't care. He just wanted to do it to say he did it. Because he got out and immediately consumed, quote, all of the drugs in Denmark. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot. Yeah. That's what it says. It literally says that. And then he stole a car and drove it right into a tree, like within feet. Okay. So he's immediately taken back. Clearly, he's not too worried about being captured again. I think it's the thrill of getting out, which brings me to the next one that just like blew my mind. Um, He used a bulldozer to plow down the prison walls. Wow. That's a good one. Lots of questions. Where on earth did you get a bulldozer from? Why? Do the prisoners have access to bulldozers? Okay. 
he straight up got in this thing, knocked down a whole wall, and set, like, 13 prisoners loose. I picture, like, the prisoner of Azkaban from Harry Potter, and, like, just when the wall just crumbles down and they all start going out, that is this guy. He's like, I'm setting them free, and, like, runs into the wall with a bulldozer, and everyone's like, ah! He's just doing it for the fun of it. Yeah. Telling you. Yeah. Wow. No repercussions. He's like, all right, let's have some fun today, guys. All right. I just I just want to point out a trend here. So Danielle tells a story. She comes mm-hmm. up with five escapes. Mm-hmm. I tell a story. I, I try to do the best I can. Mm-hmm. I can only get five. I can only match her. Now, 22 <laughs> escapes added to Danielle's count. I, I cannot beat it. I can't beat it at this point. But I do have one more story. Okay. In 2013, NT News ran a story about a brilliant prison escape. Barama Prison was a maximum security prison in Darwin, Australia. Of course, being a maximum security prison, every precaution was taken to avoid escapes. Well, every precaution except for one. In 1995, Daniel Heiss escaped. How did he pull it off? In a book written about it, he claims that he memorized the master key that he saw on the guards as they walked by. He then relayed the details to another prisoner, Shane Baker, to make the key. Baker was a jeweler and for some reason had jewelry making equipment in his cell. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Sounds like a great idea. To your point, Danielle, like why give these, why give that guy a bulldozer? A bulldozer. Why give this guy metalworking supplies? Yeah. Well, you could have probably picked locks at that point. Didn't even need a key. (laughs) Serious. Well, so he used, he used that to fashion the key. He would pass it over to Heiss, and Heiss would try it in his lock, then note changes, like, oh, this isn't working quite right, you know, shave a little off this corner. Mm-hmm. They did this back and back, back and forth, over and over, until one day, Heiss's cell door popped open. He ran over and popped Baker's door. They scaled three razor wire perimeter fences, and they were free. Well, for a while. Baker was recaptured after a few days, but Heiss was on the run for 12 After the book came out detailing how they made the fake key, a prison guard came forward saying, "Eh, that story's BS. Baker was actually the genius behind the key design, and he only handed it over to Heiss because Baker couldn't reach his own lock. The guard also detailed a truth that was far more embarrassing for the prison. Oh, no. (laughs) The prisoner's information handbook that every prisoner got on the way in had a picture on the cover, a picture of a pair of crossed keys. Those keys were a dead set copy of the keys that the guards had. The key that they copied was in the shape of a figure E, which was the master key. Danielle, they gave every inmate a copy of the master key on their book. See, look, this is the biggest issue I've had during all of this research and so far this entire episode is that, like, I went into this thinking these prisoners are going to do something crazy. But, like, every time I've come out, I'm like, who, who made these rules for these prisons? Like, who manned these doors at these prisons? Like, what is going on? Like, there's so much that goes back to the prison itself where you're just like, hello. Do you think it was a taunt? Like, do you think some guy was in the department putting the book together and going, oh, you know what we should do? Funny, yeah. Let me borrow the the master key real quick. (laughs) Click. (laughs) Let's go. Oh, good grief. Oh, so the guard said that after the escape, the handbooks were taken from all the prisoners. 
And they also changed all the locks. <laughs> yeah, that's a good choice. Like, I'm pretty sure my storage unit has better security than, like, a lot of these prisons have had so far. I'm being yeah, so serious. It's amazing. But who is going to win this month, Danielle? I don't know. I'm, is, I'm really. This is a crazy one, yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. I don't know, but it's not up to us. You guys get to vote. Those were two really good stories. But who do you think told the best crazy prison escape story? You can vote at our Twitter account at Crime After Pod for the first seven days after this episode drops. Or you can also head over to www.crimeaftercrimepodcast.com and vote there. We also always have a link in the description box below. You can still click the little letter I up in the corner and vote there as well. At crimeaftercrimepodcast.com, you could find all the links you'll ever need, including where to find more content by Danielle and myself, how to suggest show topics, join our Patreon, shop our Teespring store, and of course, vote for your top three topics. We need your help. Now, my favorite part, huge thank you to all of the patrons, you guys. Over on Patreon, we have a good time. You guys get bonus Patreon special segments monthly where we talk about all sorts of crazy topics. Um, plus, patrons get a personal shout out and an upcoming Patreon special. So and We're, we're going to do cool. that right till the, ep- the last we sure episode. Are. We're going mm-hmm. all the way through. Plus, you don't have to be worried that we're going to let the Patreon run after the show ends. We will go ahead yeah. and pause and stop it at that point. So it's never too late. If you guys want to help kick into the show a little bit, we're going to be there. Next episode, we are doing my pick for my favorite topic from all of the previous shows we've done. I am super excited to go back to this, the energy of it. Look, Danielle is beaming right now. I'm excited. (laughs) We are doing Black Friday Crimes Part 2. And if you don't remember Part 1, do yourself a favor right now. Just Go right for it and get ready Uh because we're coming back. I know there's going to be a bunch more stories. We're actually Mm -hmm. going to be releasing it after Black Friday 2022. There might be a story from this year that pops up in there. Who knows? I know. Look, but don't get any ideas and don't go and create a story for our (laughs) podcast. Okay. All of you guys stay nice and safe. That's right. Don't get yourself (laughs) in the news. Don't do anything crazy. Yeah. And this show is produced and hosted by, obviously, myself, Daniel Holland, and the amazing John Lorden. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate or review us on whatever platform you found us on. Have a great month, and we'll see you again back here on Crime After Crime. Bye, guys. <laughs>